Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much, praise team. We appreciate that. Uh, I love that song. Uh, they can bring all the new songs on, but that's a staple. I like that one. All right. Well, I do want to congratulate those who are baptized this morning. And uh, just, I, I am so grateful that uh, we have a, a ministry here at Putnam uh, that reaches out to children. And uh, there's nothing greater than seeing a child who's baptized, who has that childlike faith, uh, that just gets in there and does what he's supposed to do or what she's supposed to do. And uh, it's so refreshing to see that. So congratulations to them. And thank you uh, for being here with us, some of the family members being here with us this morning. Uh, we thank you for uh, taking the time to, to meet with us today. Ephesians chapter 6. If you will, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 6. Now, this is the last sermon in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Ephesians. And uh, believe it or not, it's taken us 20 sermons to get to where we are today. Some of you are sitting there, sitting there thinking, man, we finally made it. All right, let's move on. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but I tell you, the Lord has really challenged my heart with this study. And uh, I hope he's done the same in your life. Uh, so today, our final sermon, In Him For Him, and we're going to talk about the weaponry used against darkness and I think many of you are already know in Ephesians chapter 6, that's where you have the whole idea of the armor of God. And that's exactly what we're covering today. So if you look in your passport, there's an introduc- or an outline there. Look at the introduction. We need to be aware and alert that we are in a battle for our soul. Y'all, that's going on. You do know that, right? We're in a battle for our soul. And we, we war against the enemy, the world, and our flesh. These must be fought with the weapons given to us by God. And the reason we need to rely on those weapons is because nothing else will do. We have to rely on those things. So in Ephesians chapter 6, I want to read to you what I read to you two weeks ago when we were making our way to this. But look at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, Paul was basically saying, out of all the things I've told you, I've, I've told you about your walk, I've told you what Christ has done for you, I've told you that you're in him, that, that you're now to be, you need to be living for him. And then he says this, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power, does it say of your might? His might. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Take note of when he says, be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the strategies, the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And in verse 13 is where we really are today. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. The evil day is the whole idea of the days that temptation comes to visit us. By the way, how many of you have noticed that comes about every day? Comes about every day, doesn't it? He says that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to what? To stand. Now, notice the terminology there. Three times we're told to stand. You see, the posture for battle here is to hold ground and not necessarily go on the offensive. It means to hold the ground God has given us through Jesus. You see, when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you turned your life over to him. You repented of your sins. You placed your faith in him. And as a result, everything in your life changed. 
Recently, I've told you, it's literally the whole idea of living your life in the context of God. That everything, the decisions that you make, that the thoughts that you have, that the things that you stand against, the forgiveness that you've received, and the fact that, that you're set apart and that you're given his righteousness and you're to live victoriously, all that is ground that he has given you. And basically, the command that Paul's given us, he's saying, stand on that ground. Don't retreat from there. Realize that you have been forgiven. You don't have to walk in condemnation anymore. You don't have to walk in shame and guilt. You don't have to walk in the whole idea of being unforgiven. You are forgiven. And so he says, stand on that ground that's been given to you by, by God through Jesus. So stand there. Now, let's go a little further. Paul tells us in other places, and look here on the screen in Galatians chapter 5, that we battle with the flesh. Now, when he says we don't battle against the flesh, he's basically saying we don't merely battle against the flesh. But then he says this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you, not, you do not do the things that you wish. It's the reason you wake up one day and say, how in the world did I, why did I do that? Or how did I come to understand that that was the right thing to do? It's when we yield to the flesh. And he's basically saying there's another battlefront here, and it's with the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look here on the screen, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. You can't battle the battle that we're in with the flesh. You can't go after it with your own might. You can't say, well, I'll tell you one thing, I'll take the enemy on myself. You'll lose every time. You got to realize that greater is he that's within you than he that's in the world. It's that whole idea that he's living through you and that he desires to, to be victorious through you. And then he says this, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You can't get anything with the flesh. It, it doesn't produce anything. It doesn't bring victory. But mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Now, it's interesting when he says strongholds there, let me tell you what that is. You see, when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God gives through Jesus the ground in which we stand. He gives us that. We are to hold that ground. But let me tell you what happens in many people's lives. Sometimes they give up that ground. Sometimes they uh, allow the enemy to take that ground. And for some of you sitting here today, that's exactly what you've done. You, you know who you are in Christ. You've read it. You know that he set you apart. You know that he has expectations of your life. He has a plan for your life. He, he doesn't want you walking in condemnation. But for some reason, you've allowed the enemy to take ground that, that he was not intended to take from you. And by the way, it, it, it wasn't that he was so good at it. It's the fact, if you really want to get down to the bottom of it, you allowed that to take place. Again, it's that whole verse, greater is he that's within us than he's in the world. So that, what does that imply? We gave him that ground. And so when he talks about strongholds here, there's really two ideas when you look at the armor of God. You've got the whole idea of standing and saying, no, this is what Christ has done in my life. This is what he, he died for. This is how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to stand here. Three times we're told to do that. But there, there are times in which we have to use the armor to go and take back what, his, what the enemy has taken, really what we've given him. And so those are the two whole ideas of what the armor's really all about. 
So how do we use uh, this battle? I mean, what do we use in this battle? First of all, and many of you know this, you've studied this all your life, but here's what we have as Christians. This is what we can use. First of all, the belt of truth. The belt of truth. In Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 14. The first part says, here it is again, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. The Roman warrior wore a short skirt, much like a Scottish kilt. Over the skirt, they wore a cloak or a tunic. A thick leather belt was worn over the cloak around the waist so that it could be tucked into the belt. The cloak could be tucked into the belt when going into battle. Now think of this. The leather belt really, when you think about it, held everything together. The, the, the sword was placed on the belt. The breastplate was held in place by the belt. You see, the belt had leather straps hanging down. There was a protection that was given through the, uh, the belt also. Coins, this is interesting to note, coins were added to the belt to note the soldier's previous victories in battle. Now, let me just tell you this. How many of you, when you think back over your life and you think about the battles you've been in, you don't necessarily have gold coins that talk about the victory, but you have scars that talk about the victory? You know what I'm talking about? Do you have the scars? I think we all do. But here's what's interesting. Just as a leather belt... Think about this, this leather belt. Just as a leather belt, truth holds everything together. What we believe, when you think about this whole idea of truth, here's one thing you got to understand. Truth in what we believe about ourselves. Do you, know what's, do you know why people have a hard time standing the ground that God's already given them through Christ? They don't understand the truth of where they really are. They don't realize certain promises in God's word. You see, the only way we're going to get the truth is we've got to study the truth. We've got to know the truth. You're sitting here today, I hope, thinking and thinking as you came, saying, I need to go hear more truth today, that I can understand more of who I am, especially of who I am in Christ. But here's a better part. This is really the key of what we need to learn. It's not only about who we are, but more importantly, who he is. That's what we need to understand. Because when we fully understand who he is, We'll have no problem understanding who we are. Because again, how are we to live our lives, lives if we know him? In the context of who he is. So in the context of who he is, what I know about him reveals a lot about what I know about myself. Now, the problem with our world today is everybody's trying to figure out themselves in the context of them. You, you see what I'm saying? For some people, they're trying to understand who they are in the context of the world. Now, the world doesn't offer anything, to be honest with you. I mean, there, there's all kinds of fallacies out there. There's all, kind of, all kinds of untruths out there. We're to live in truth. Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 6, he says, and Paul, by the way, Paul tells us this really in every epistle that he ever wrote. He says, do not be deceived. That means don't buy into the lies. Some of you here this morning, you bought into lies. Lies that you believe about yourself. Lies that the enemy has told you. And, and so you're hanging on to all that. So for many Christians, and I guarantee you, I've had episodes in my life. Hasn't been that long ago when I was in this. You live in defeat instead of victory. Because you started believing the lies that you've told yourself. Or the lies that the enemy has, has engaged you with. And no longer were you walking in the truth of who Christ and God said you were. But in what you, the world said you were. 
And by the way, when the world starts speaking and when, when we start listening to our own voice, do you know what it sounds like? Insecurity. You see, when you look around, you see so many people with insecurities in their life. It's because they're listening to the wrong voice. They're, they're listening to the wrong people. We, need, we get all that from Christ. In John chapter 8, we read that Satan is the father of lies. Therefore, truth must therefore be at the core of who we are. And so there's three things I want you to see here. Look on your outline. First of all, we need to know the total truth of God's word. The truth of God's word. It's important that we know it. And by the way, did you know God's word is a specific kind of truth? It's absolute truth. It's what it says it is. Thou shall not, thou shall do. It's absolute. The creator of the universe, think about this. He created you. He, 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 uh, we fail. All of a sudden, he sent a savior to come save us. He, he, he repositioned us in such a way that we now can stand in victory. And so many times, though, we don't stand there. We don't know the truth. Therefore, if, if this is absolute truth, God's word is absolute truth, we need to build our whole lives around that truth. Here's what's interesting. And this is the thing that's really <laughs> bothering me about what's going on. How many of you are aware we are living in an election year? <laughs> you can't, I mean, every time you turn on the TV. Let me just say this. I'm not going to tell you how you need to vote. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you about a person you need to vote for here this morning. But I'm, I'm very discouraged by those who hold up what they say is the truth of God's word, who say that the values of a candidate are not really that important. Values are very important. The values that we are attempting to live our lives in are the values that are rooted in God's word. It's the truth. It's, 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 it's where we make our decisions from. It's how we, do, how we operate, how we conduct our lives, how we conduct our lives, whether we're a politician or whatever. Y'all, values do matter. When you go to the voting booth, you, you, vote, you vote values. <laughs> values are important. I think we need to understand that. We need to know the truth of God's word. Next, we need to live the truth of God's word. Speaking of the nation of Israel, the Old Testament over and over again, if you've ever studied the Old Testament, you know it says this. It says this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They, 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 they separated themselves from the truth. They wanted to redefine truth. They wanted to make the truth up as they went along. And they walked away from what was truly truth. Over and over again, Paul in his writings reminds us of the importance of walking in the light, of walking in the truth. We are to live. We, we're, not only are we to know the truth, we are to live in the context of the truth. And then thirdly, we are to declare the total truth of God's word. All the gospels end with a command to go and tell. The book of Acts starts with the command to go and tell. We are to make known the truths of God's word. You know what's amazing? Uh, uh, the people that I encounter, whether it's in the gym or wherever you may be or where you find yourselves, if you talk to people long enough, you really can 
find out a lot about a person. You really can. You can hear where their perspective is and what they think of themselves, what they think about different things. And it's interesting that I think so many times when we hear that we need to make Christ known, we immediately go to the gospel, and that's a great place to start. But did you know before we can really carry people to the gospel, we have to, we have to help reveal who God truly is to them? Because we live in a world that does not really know who God is. They're blaming God for things that he shouldn't be blamed for. They're, I mean, there's all kinds of talk out there. Which God? I mean, you, sometimes we just have to introduce them to go back to the basics of who he is. So we need to declare the total truth of God's word. The bottom line is this. We need to be committed to the truth of God's word. Psalm 51, the psalmist said this. It was David. David said this. Behold you, God, you desire truth in my inward parts. When he talks about truth in the inward parts, it's more than just what is known. It is what is lived. It is the perspective that person has. It is the values that person has. It's the morals. It's all those things. And they conduct themselves in that light. Here's the second part, the second part of the armor, the breastplate of righteousness. Ephesians 6 says this in verse 14, the latter part, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now the breastplate protected the vital organs, the soldier's chest and heart. Now the best way to protect your heart, if you really think about it, is to put on Christ's righteousness. Now now think of this, righteousness is God's way of protecting us. So, So when God says, This is the right thing to do, and we do it. You know what he's doing? He's protecting us. Uh, So many times, especially when I was a teenager, and even when I was a youth pastor dealing with teenagers, it seemed like the premise is that God's trying to keep us away from all the fun. You remember those days? (laughs) And it's interesting that God's not, he's not a killjoy. He's not someone out there trying to destroy. He's providing for you by giving you these commands. He's helping you for the next stages of your life. That What he's saying is, especially as a teenager, when you look at it, you, you can destroy the potential of your life right here. Pay attention. Get a hold of God's word. So righteousness is God's way of protecting us. Righteousness protects us from the consequences of sin. According to God's word, here, here's, here's, here's where we're in trouble. But according to God's word, we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. Now think about that. Think about the whole premise of what he says. He is saying that these commands are put in place to protect you. When you do these commands and you do them the right way, it is righteousness. You're living out righteousness. But then we learn in Scripture that we can't rely on our own righteousness. You know why? Because Isaiah says this. We are all, we are like an unclean thing and our righteousness is, Our righteousness are like filthy rags. Therefore, it appears we have a problem. But this is where Jesus comes in. And there's two things I want you to see here this morning. There are two kinds of righteousness in Scripture. First of all, look on your out. There's imputed righteousness. And here's what it means. It means to ascribe something, namely Jesus' righteousness, to someone who is not capable of living the standard of God's righteousness. Now, before we go any further, have you ever wondered why the Old Testament is, is even in the Bible? Have you ever wondered that? 
you look back there and, I mean, you go studying it and you got some history about the nation of Israel and how they messed up and God brought them back, how they messed up and how God brought them back, how they messed over and over and over again. But right in the middle of all that, you got all these thou shalls and thou shall nots. Have you ever, God, I mean, I see the expectation here. How many of you have realized that as you work your way through those, those thou shall and thou shall nots, how many of you realize that you can't live up to all that? That's one of the, the reasons the Old Testament is there. To, to build a case against you that you're not a righteous person. In and of yourself, you won't go that way. In and of yourself, you're still never going to be acceptable to God. The Old Testament reveals that to us. Jesus comes along and he corrects it. He basically says, hold on to me and I'll get you there, basically. And so the idea of imputed righteousness is the idea of declared righteousness because someone made, made it possible for you to be righteous and it's been given to you because of what someone else has done. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us how it goes. For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So how do we get this righteousness that we need so desperately? It's through Jesus. It's, it's been given to us by him. And we come on his terms to receive that. There's a second type of righteousness in scripture. It's imparted righteousness. And it means to give something, namely the power, to someone to enable them to overcome their flesh and sin. Now, here's what you need to understand. If you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and you go out there and you say, well, I just couldn't help myself. I, I fell in the flesh, and oh, my goodness, it's awful. Did you know a lost person may, could, could, could really get away with that statement, but, but a saved person really can't? You can't use that as an excuse. You know why? Because you've been given imparted righteousness. That means you've been given the power within, not in and of yourself, the power that's been granted to you to overcome any sin that comes your way. That's possible. A lot of us don't reflect that, but it's possible. The Bible says in John 1.12, but as many as received him, that's Jesus, to them Jesus gave the right or the power to become children of God. That's the reality in which we live now. We're children of God to those who believe in his name. Here's, here's the third part of the armor, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Ephesians 6 says this, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's that whole idea of putting on the, the right shoes. <laughs> now, if you ask any general of infantry soldiers, they will tell you that good footwear is, is a must when it comes to victory. The Roman soldier was not an exception. History records that the military successes of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were due largely to their army's ability to undertake long journeys at incredible speed over rough terrain. The proper shoes made this possible. You do realize they didn't get into the Hummers to go to battle, right? They weren't dropped off by a big old plane to where they needed to be. They had to walk. They had to walk there. <laughs> and the, the shoes was very important to, to the ancient warrior. 
Josephus, a Jewish historian in the first century, tells us that the Roman soldier's shoes were sandals with thick soles with sharp nails in the bottom to keep them from falling in battle. Now, what is that similar to that you know of? Football. The cleats that linemen wear, especially. You ever seen a good football game? Maybe you watched the one a couple weeks ago that we didn't... Well, anyway... I'm not going to get into who I really pulled for because you won't like me. But anyway, uh, let me just say this. Those linemen, they don't stand a chance if they don't have the right cleats on. Matter of fact, there were a couple games played here at the end that they had to go back and forth and put on the right kind of shoes to, to hold their footing so they could do carry out what they needed to carry out. The soldier is no different. The soldier is no different in this. The shoes of the gospel of peace is a picture of a trusting confidence in the promises of God. It's more than just a shoe. It's the whole arena of trusting God that is holding you in place. It's literally the whole idea of standing on the promises. Standing on the promises. Now in Ephesians, Paul tells us how to walk in these shoes. I want you to uh, look back at Ephesians 2. Uh, We're going to run through this quickly. First of all, he says, walk in good works. Walk in good works. Now, anytime we are told to walk in Scripture, there are two implications, okay? So if you read something that says, walk this way, okay? And I'm going to show you how he says to walk. There's two assumptions with it, or two implications. Walk implies living in God's truth. I'm living in God's truth. I I not only know it, I'm living it out. That's the walk, But there's a second implication. Walk also implies living out God's expectations of us. Okay? So when you think of walk, it means more than knowing something about him, more than knowing the truth. It's actually living that truth out, but it's all in the context. The second implication is the fact that God has an expectation about that walk. And Paul shows us this. So number one, he says, walk in good works. Look at Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, what? Should walk in them. Do you hear the expectation? It's the expectation that he has. So if, if, you know, if, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, the expectation is for you to walk in truth, to not only know it, you're living it out. To not only live it out, you understand there's an expectation from God to do that. Here's another one. Walk worthy of your calling. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 1. I therefore, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Again, walk in truth. Let your life show it. It's more than knowing it. There's an expectation that comes with it. Here's another one. Walk differently than the world. Ephesians chapter 4 again. Look at verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Now, the context of the Gentiles there is talking about the lost world, those who do not know Christ, those who are not in him. And he says those, those people walk in the futility of their mind. That means several things. It means they're not walking in God's truth. They're walking in what their mind can make up. And there is no expectation that is on their life that they can see. That's not a good place to be, but that's where a majority of the world's living. Here's another one, walk in love. 
Ephesians chapter 5, look at the first part of verse 2. He says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and giving himself for us. He says next, walk in, in the light. Ephesians 5 verse, uh, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So what do you read there? You're reading two things. It's got to be more than just knowing truth. I'm living the truth out. And God has an expectation for that to take place. Here's another one. Walk circumspectly. This is where many Christians are missing it. Ephesians 5, look at verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly. It literally means see then that you walk cautiously, that you're watchfully, that you're discreetly, not as fools, but as wise. You see, a lot of Christians, I'm just going to be honest with you, don't walk carefully. They just kind of make their way through the world. They don't live their life with intention to live out the principles in God's word. They just kind of coast. Just kind of go with where the world's going. Here's another one. Another part of the armor, the shield of faith. There's three parts to verse 16. Look at uh, chapter 6, verse 16. He says, above all, now he's not taken away from the other things that have been listed, but he's saying this is a very important piece here. Okay, This shield of faith, this is very important. How many of you know that faith is important when it comes to your walk with the Lord? You know why it's so important? Because there's a lot about it that's not very obvious sometimes. I mean, let's face it. The world we live in, the one we operate in, we can see a lot of things. But what Paul reminds us in almost every epistle is, y'all, there's another world behind this world that we see. And it takes faith to see it. It takes faith to see past what we already see. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'd be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, my translation says all the fiery darts. That means, here's what that means. It doesn't matter what the enemy throws at me, I can have victory over it. Think about that. Do, many, do, we, do we as Christians live that way though? You ever been discouraged I've spent a lot of my adult life battling discouragement. Uh, the enemy, uh, when he comes at me, uh, he brings discouragement to my life. I think many of you would probably say the same thing, just discouragement. Now, when a person's discouraged, you know, you know what it, the word literally it means? We become without strength. Does it take strength to live truth? Does it take strength to live out the expectation God has for it? Does it take strength to stand against the enemy? But when he brings that discouragement, it's like we lose strength. We've got to be aware of that. That's where the faith kicks in. That, 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 that's where we claim the victory of the fact that everything the enemy throws at me, I am capable of standing against. And so the Roman soldier had two different kinds of shields. One, which was small and round. It was used more for hand-to-hand combat. But then there was another shield. It was large enough for several soldiers to crouch behind to protect themselves. So if they were going against a, a massive army coming against them, they could lock, uh, all these soldiers could stand there and they have a barrier. It appears that, that what is taking place here with this shield is possibly more of the hand-to-hand combat. Now, the surface of the shield was either a type of metal, it became metal later, or leather-covered wood. 
Many of the shields were of certain colors to identify the allies from the enemy. Now keep in mind that the whole reality of this war that I'm talking about is seen through the eyes of faith. Now Hebrews tells us a lot about faith, but listen to what verse 6 says. Without faith, y'all know what this says, right? It is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder rewarder of those, this is so important, who diligently seek him. Let me ask you something. When the enemy throws everything he's got at you, and by the way, how many of you have been there before? Been there? I mean, every time he turns around, it's like he's coming at you from a different angle, through a different means. But here's what that means. When those times come, instead of cowering under and caving to the discouragement and the doubt and the fear, it, 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 and again, what's the terminology? What's the battle posture of what, what we've read so far? It's to stand. It's to hold the ground. Don't lose strength. Don't lose courage. It's to stand there. Here's what we need to realize. That, that I must turn the whole means of what I'm dealing with, battling discouragement, I've got to somehow flip it where I am diligently seeking him. Sometimes it sounds like this, just to be honest with you. God, where are you? <laughs> what are you doing even when you say that? You're acknowledging him. You're, you're basically saying, I can't do this. God, where are you? And it's not to the point of blaming him. and say, It's to the point of, God, I need you right now. Give me a word. Give me something. How many of you have been there and then opened up God's word and it was like, bam. <laughs> I wish I could tell you that that's the way it happens all the times, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we stay there for a while. And for some of us, we continue to lose energy. We continue to lose courage. And we continue to lose ground. But y'all, we're told, even in that whole midst, even in that, even when we don't hear from the general, so to speak, guess what our responsibility is? We're to still hold the ground. Continue to seek him and what he's up to. Now, he says, what, the whole idea, watch for the fiery darts. Now, the shield of faith, here's what happens. Shield of faith catches the lies of Satan in midair. Okay, so the enemy's going to pitch something at you. So the shield is used the whole, to, to stop the lie. Okay, now what do, you, what do you have to do when the lie comes? You've got to replace it with what? The truth. That's what the sword's for. So it's hand-to-hand combat. You're holding, the, you're holding it. Now, you're, you, the lies are being absorbed in the shield of faith, but all of a sudden, you've got the truth there. Now, during the Vietnam War, a standard operating procedure for the Vietnamese was to try to break the prisoners down mentally, those who were captured. To do this, hour after hour, they would pump propaganda lies into the prisoner cells through loudspeakers and through interrogators. And here's some things that they would tell them. They'd tell them that the U.S. was a government of monsters and devils, that the military had forgotten them, that they were listed as killed in action and no one would attempt to free them, that their families were no longer concerned about them, that their wives had already remarried. Over and over again, they heard these messages. Now, what did many of them come to understand later? All of them were lies. But there were probably some who cowered under, who lost ground, who just believed, and probably many of them died. I would, happen, I would think that they would. 
But the ones who survived, they knew how to absorb the lie and tell themselves in their mind the truth. So, so what they would have to do is they'd have to do that. They haven't forgotten me. They don't believe I'm dead. They will come for me. My wife hasn't given up on me. By focusing on truth through the eyes of faith, these POWs overcame their brutal captivity. And when you think about it, we must do the same to keep from being victims in this battle. So, so here's some things. The lies, the fiery darts. I believe there are three major things that he throws at us. Number one, the first one you see there is doubt. How many of you know that the enemy is great at placing doubt? He's really good at this. But the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he who calls you is faithful who also will do it. God's called you. He's faithful. He's going to do it. You can trust the promises. Don't, don't doubt the promises. Here's another one, fear. How many of you at times are plagued with fear? Lack of courage. Psalms 23 says this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Well, no, just taking it and lifting up the truth. Here's another one, temptation. How many of you realize he's really good at temptation? Really good at it. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation has overcome you except such as common demand. We all are dealing with this, but there's no reason why you got to cave in. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're capable of withstanding. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Again, you know what that goes back to? Everything the enemy throws at you, you can withstand. That's a promise in Scripture. You can overcome it. Here's another one, the helmet of salvation. Ephesians 6 says this, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, for obvious reason, the Roman soldier wore a helmet. A blow to the head with a club or a sword could easily lead to instant death. So the helmet, this is interesting, was made of leather and brass and lined with either felt or sponge for comfort and a tight fit. Sounds familiar. It almost sounds like the equipment of a football player or something. Now, um, I've told this story before, and it kind of reveals a lot about my, uh, how naive I was when I was a younger, younger young man, I guess. But um, in the seventh grade, I wanted to try out for football. I've told some of you this. Uh, you've heard it before. But I, I was really intent. And the reason I wanted to is because I had an uncle. He was a big old guy. And he played football for the school that I was attending. Uh, and he was kind of one of those that people look back and say, hey, you remember when he played? Man, they had a good team then. You know those kind of guys? Well, he was that guy. I happened to stumble upon, <laughs> I opened up a chest at my grandparents' house, and I found what I thought to be was his uh, football equipment, okay? The helmet, the pads, and everything, okay? And so I, I would take them out. And the summer before I was going to try out for football, I'd take him out and run around the yard. And I was in the seventh grade, okay, so it was junior high, what we called junior high back then, junior high football. And, and I put him on. I, I, man, I'm like, I felt invincible. I'm like, yeah, bring it on. I can take anything, you know. And so I go out to try out for football, and, and, and I, I show up, and, and we go through it. Well, <laughs> after school, guess what I did? First practice, I go get my football equipment from my uncles, who my uncle gave me. And I show up, and you know enough about football. You don't wear pads the first practice, not even the first week, really. I showed up. I was ready. 
Well, finally, about a week later, we got to bring on the pads. They started handing out pads and, and equipment, and I basically said, no, I'm fine. I got my own. Got my own. Okay? So I go, and the first drill we had to do was one-on-one. -on -one. You ever done that where you had to take down? One of you carried the football. The other one had to take them down. <laughs> the very first play in which I made contact with someone, the shoulder pads broke in half. <laughs> the helmet cracked right down the center. And, of course, I'm sitting there saying, I had the right equipment. Actually, I didn't. That's what not the equipment my uncle played with. That was what he played with when he was in the fifth grade, and he went running around the yard. Wasn't the real equipment, okay? So, therefore, you know what I had to learn? I had to learn that you got to have the right, the right equipment. Because I got out there, and I almost hurt. I got hurt badly, okay? And, and so you see that. Now, the, the moral of, to the story is this. The right equipment is very important. So, so let's look at the helmet of salvation. It provides three things. First of all, the past. It provides for the past, and it taught, it's the whole idea of security. And the word there that you need to think of is a, a, a theological word. It's uh, justification. So in, in Romans chapter 5, the Bible says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. The past reality of our salvation delivered us, here's what you need to understand, from the penalty of sin and the penalty of death, okay? So when I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was declared okay with God, okay? More than okay. I was declared I'm a child of God. You know how? I took on Christ's righteousness, justification. There's a second part to this helmet, the present. It speaks of power. It speaks of sanctification. It's where you're living today. So if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been saved from the penalty and the payment for death. Now you're living the life he's called you to live. Now you're, you have the power to overcome sin. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who do not know Christ. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's the third thing. The helmet of salvation provides for the future. It's the whole idea of victory. It's glorification. And by the way, that hasn't happened yet. It's when we leave this body, stand before Christ himself, we'll get this. First Peter describes it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us, that means we've been born again, to a living hope. That means what he's saved us from is more than just being saved from death, uh, from death and the penalty of sin. He saved us for something also. He's, given, he's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That sealed the deal to an inheritance. This is what's coming. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. That's going to be us. Can you imagine being uncorruptible and undefiled? Not even the potential of that happening to you anymore. That's what awaits us. He says, and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's the whole idea of glorification. So the future reality of our salvation will remove us from the battle that we're talking about. So the helmet of salvation, there's a past implication with it. There's a present. But the future is this. We're going to be taken away from the battle. How many of you look forward to that day? No more battling the flesh. No more battling the world. 
No more being discouraged by what we see out there in the world and where it appears the world's headed. No, no more discouragement. No longer fighting the enemy because he's going to be removed. The helmet of salvation is a picture of hope that comes from focusing on our ultimate salvation. The last piece of the armor, i got to hurry, is the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6 says, in the sword of the Spirit, we don't have to guess what it is, which is the Word of God. The word sword here in verse 7 actually is not a long sword we would envision. It's really a dagger. Some would say between 6 and 18 inches long. And a Roman soldier was trained to fight with the dagger when it came to -to hand-to-hand combat. Now, just as many Christians do not know how to use the shield of faith, many do not know how to use the dagger either, the sword. Now, um, and the reason for that is because they don't, many of them don't know the truth. Now, uh, I want to show you something in Scripture. There are two words used for the word word in Scripture. The first one is logos, L-O-G-O-S, Okay. And that is a word. It refers to the total revelation of God to a general audience. So your Bible, the word you have, is a general revelation to all of us. Okay? And there's reference of that in Scripture. There's a second word for word, and it's rhema. This is an important word. It's the specific revelation of God to an individual or a group. Let me show you in Acts chapter 10 how, how both are used. It says the word which is Logos, which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Now, we're going to get more specific. That the word, Rhema, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Now, here's what all this means. It means when it comes to the sword of the Spirit, there's two ways we can look at what the sword's doing. The first one is a general revelation where we can just see a promise, claim that promise, and say, hey, this is a promise to all. But how many of you have ever been in your life where you're battling something? It's just been hard to stand there, and God gives you a specific word for a specific thing you're dealing with. That's the rhema word of God. Did you know I've met Christians in which that's never happened to them before? Can I tell you, that's the kind of relationship God wants to have with you? It's more than just a general revelation that's been given to everyone. There are times in which God wants to speak to the the deepest recesses of your heart to give you a word. He wants to do that. He can do it when you're reading the word. He can do it through a devotional. Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. I can't tell you how many times God spoke to me directly just through that one devotion. He can do it through the preaching of the word. But you got to be under the word. you got to open yourself to the word to receive these things. Here's a footnote. Even though the weapons are mighty, communication is also essential in battle. The rest of Ephesians 6 is all about prayer. Look at verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. It means to be aware of what to ask for. It's that whole idea. Be aware of what to even ask for. A lot, a lot of times we get in these messes and we don't even know what to ask for. And then it goes on, in the spirit. Prayer and supplication in the spirit. In the spirit is a whole idea of praying that which is consistent with God's nature and his will. Being watchful. It means being alert. We need to be that when we're in battle. To this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Verse 19. And for me, Paul's saying specifically pray for me, that utterance may be given to me. Now when he's talking about utterance, he's talking the idea of rhema. 
He's not talking about the general revelation of God. He's talking about the rhema word. He's talking about give me something specific to share. Give me something. Uh, pray that I'll have that. That God would give me. Paul said that God would give me the words to say. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For which I am ambassador in change. In change that, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, here's what you need to understand. The armor is very, very important. You may be out there and you've got the armor. You got it all in place. But if you're not hearing from the one leading the battle, you're still in trouble. You got to realize how prayer, how important prayer is. Everyone knows that if you can't, if you cut off communication with the ground troops, you're going to win the battle. The same is true in the unseen battle. So here's the application. To be successful in battle, we got to do three things. We must analyze our enemy. We did that two weeks ago. We must utilize our weaponry. We're, we looked at that today. And then I just want to close with this one thought. we got to realize our victory. The Bible says in Romans 8, 37, yet in all these things, all these things that may come against us, if you read Romans 8, you know what I'm saying. There's a whole list there. Yeah, all, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, more than conquerors. So this morning, what does that mean? You don't have to sit here in defeat. You don't have to sit here under the whole idea of the fact you may have given ground to the enemy. You can take that back. How do you do that? You gotta, you gotta replace the lie you've been believing with the truth of God's word. And you gotta stand therefore. And guess what? You gotta use it all. Every piece of the armor is important. You leave out one, you're gonna be in trouble. It's all important. You know one thing that I love, the fact, and I've heard, I've heard people say this, and they've said this. Here's what they'll say. This is the greatest honor as a pastor I've ever felt. They'll say this. They say, hey, pastor, I just want you to know I pray for you. I pray for you. And some, some will even tell me how they're praying. I pray, and when I pray, I put on the armor of God on you. Y'all, <laughs> we need that. We need people praying that for us. We need to be praying that for ourselves too. That deception may not come our way. Would you stand to your feet? Father, I just pray for this, those that are here this morning. And Lord, I pray for that one that may be here today that doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior. They, all this talk that we've been talking is foreign to them. They've never heard of the armor of God. They, they don't really understand all the implications. Father, if there's someone here today that's never trusted you as our Lord and Savior, turned from their sin, turned to you, accepted you on the terms that you've asked for to, to come by faith. If there's a person here today that's never done that, I pray today will be the day to give their heart to you. Father, I pray for the Christian that may be standing here today. And when I started talking about discouragement and all the things that they're dealing with, the temptations that they're dealing with, the, the fear, the lack of courage. Father, maybe they're standing here or standing here today thinking, you know, I, he's right. I don't have to live in this. Christ has made the provision. I don't have to live under the penalty of my sin. I don't have to live under the penalty of death. You provided for that. Help me now to walk in the power which you've given me through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help me to realize how important this armor is to stay in contact with prayer with you, Father, so that I can understand what's really going on in my life. 
Father, have your way in our lives. If there's someone here, Lord, today that believes this is the church home you called them to be a part of, as we come together, as not as people who just attend the church, but we come together as warriors to fight against the enemy. Lord, I pray you'll draw them here. If that's what you're calling them to do, be a part of this church. Thank you for what you're going to do. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. I've clarified it.